Amen. Amen. I want to join the student ministry pastors and the greenhouse pastors in congratulating you seniors. Well done on your graduation. And, and we look forward to hearing more about what's going on in your lives as we move forward. I'm going to encourage you this morning, if you have your Bible with you, maybe you have it on a device or you have a hard copy at home, and to pull out uh, the, the book of Job, if you would. Maybe you've already downloaded the notes. They were posted last night. You can find them in an email from Jeff that was sent out. But if you haven't done that, go ahead and load those down. You're going to want the notes this morning as well. We'll be in the book of Job. Before we get to that, though, I, I want to pray with you. So first of all, welcome, by the way. Glad that you're part of this. The worship team, we gave them a few minutes to get off the platform, and they'll be back in just a minute after we're done working through the book of Job. And we're going to take some time now to uh, pray, to really go before the Father and ask him to heal our land. That's what I want to ask you to do with me, not only to prepare our hearts for what we're about to look at, but that God would put us in that place where he can work through us to help bring restoration and, and that he would accomplish his perfect purposes in all, all that's going on. So what I uh, see this moment as a time where we can set aside three, four minutes and just go to the Father and ask him, ask him to do what only he can do. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, I thank you for this time that your people can come before you and ask you to hear our heart. We know that you do. We, we know that you hear us when we pray. But God, we, we come in a special way this morning. We know that you're attuned to everything because you're sovereign. But we come before you not only to prepare our hearts as we look into the book of Job and how you want to speak to us in the midst of the things that we're going through, but God, I ask that you would especially look on our land, upon this United States of America, that you would be especially attentive, Father, to the, the hurt and the chaos, and that you would cause us to find a path through that. And we know that there is no way to find a path short of Jesus. So we ask, Father, that your word would go forward, that it would be preeminent in this nation, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be lifted up as the solution. Father, I pray for those who are in the midst of trauma and fear, that they're wondering what might tomorrow hold. God, especially within our church, people who are fearful for tomorrow, I, I pray that you would bring comfort, that you would bring peace, that you would bring joy. Restore that, Father. Father, for, for those within our church who make governmental decisions, I pray, God, that you would give them wisdom. We pray for the leaders of our nation and the leaders of our state, that they would do things that would be in accordance with your word, that they would seek you, that they would humble themselves, and that they would pray, Father, and that you would hear from heaven and that you would answer the request that we would find a way to bring peace and, and a restoration of unity within our nation. God, I, I pray especially for people who have suffered loss in the midst of these last 12 weeks during this time of virus. Father, we're finding ourselves looking for uh, solutions, but also looking for reasons why. And short of you, we can't find an answer. That especially focuses us on why we're looking at the book of Job this morning. So God, I, I pray that you would cause this book that's thousands of years old to speak to us right now. 
This book of Job that you caused to be written down echoes from the past and it will echo into our future. God, let us see you in the midst of it. I, I pray for that. I pray for that in the name of Jesus, whom we want to be preeminent and to be able to see in the midst of Job's story. So we pray that you would do that for us. Do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Several weeks back, I had someone approach me and, and ask a question uh, of, regarding a quote that they had heard, and they wanted to know whether or not the quote was true and if it was accurate. And it comes from A.W. Tozer. You're going to see it come up on your screen there at home, and, and you just read along with me. And it, if you're new to New Hope, by the way, we put passages of Scripture up on the screen. We put quotes on the screen so you can see. And you read this one along with me. It says this from A.W. Tozer. It is doubtful whether God can bless anyone greatly until he has hurt them deeply. I've had multiple individuals approach me about that quote over the years, and the, the one most recently was asking if I was familiar with it. And if I was familiar with it, could I explain it to them? In other words, they're saying, is that true? Well, when I heard it, I immediately thought of A.W. Tozer because I know Tozer's writings, and I'm a big fan of his writings, and I appreciate the theological way in which he approaches it. But I also immediately was acutely aware of Job, because as Tozer's writing, he's, he's writing about the instances in which we go through trauma in our life, and Tozer was leaning into the Job experience. I'm, I'm speaking specifically of the Job of the Old Testament, who's referred to multiple times throughout the Bible, not just in the book of Job. <clears throat> Let me show you an example of that in which God himself was speaking about Job, and he was speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. You'll see that passage come up on your screen, Ezekiel 14, 19. God's saying this, if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut it off from man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. You hear what's going on here? God's saying, if I destroyed a nation with a virus, if I took out a nation through a plague, you'd find three individuals still standing. If they were in that land, they would still be there and they would be Noah, Daniel, and Job. In other words, Job's righteousness is so elevated by God, the way that he lived his daily life, God says, I'd have that one. In the midst of a plague, I'd have that one. I would preserve Job. Now, that's a remarkable place to be. That is a remarkable place that where no matter what else is going on around you, if markets are crashing, if the jobless reports are coming in and they keep spiking higher and higher and higher, if you lose all your finances, if there's rapid unemployment, if everything else fails, God says, I got that one. I'm going to preserve that one. Well, it is true. It is true that God uses individuals greatly after they've walked through trauma. Because trauma is a purifier. And I know some of you are thinking right now, I must be really purified because I've gone through a lot of trauma. Just hear me on that again trauma, hurt in your life, is a purifier. You might personally not go through too many things, 
that are harder or more severe than what you've gone through in the last 12, 13, 14 weeks in your life. You, you may go through things that are much more severe, but there's a chance you may not go through anything harder than what you just walked through recently. What did it produce in you? How did it purify you? We started a Q&A session eight, nine weeks ago in the middle of April, and we were doing it on Wednesday nights for a short period of time. And the very first Wednesday night, I asked people at that time who were dialed in and watching, how do you want to be different at the end of this than what you are right at that moment? Well, looking back on it now, you're in the midst of June, and you can look back on it. What did it produce in your life? And how do you want to be different going forward? How do you want to allow that pain to purify you? Because pain produces, trauma produces things in your life. What did it produce in your life? Well, let's focus in on Job's story. I'm going to give you a little bit of the background. The, the prologue to Job is incredibly important. I would say it's absolutely essential that you understand what's going on. Otherwise, the rest of the story won't make sense. With only a few strokes of the pen in chapters 1 and 2, there's a sketch that's drawn. There's an image of the throne of God. And we're seen, shown the scenes of earth. And in the throne of God area, we're, we're shown the heavenly council in chapter 1. That there are those who report to God and come before him. And you also see Satan appear on the scene. And he's got these relentless accusations. The book of Job is full of lofty prose. Sometimes it edges over into poetry. He uses rare words, elegant words, unusual sentence structure. And it's different from many other forms of Scripture. The way that it describes the stories, unlike most other books of the Bible. So I encourage you to take your time and really pay attention. And I'm going to encourage you also to study the book of Job this week. If you can, read chapters 1 through 42. There's 42 chapters. Some of them are very short. But spend some time in it because we're going to come back to it again next weekend. It's very clear that the writers of the New Testament hold Job in really high esteem. They quote him over and over again. Some direct quotes from Job, Romans chapter 11 from Paul, and, and in 1 Corinthians, and, and then there's James, the brother of Jesus, James 5.11. Let me show you this one. You'll see it on your screen. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You can see he's starting to edge over into Job now. You have, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, you may this week read the book of Job, and maybe you've never read it before, and it's in the Old Testament between Esther and Psalms, if you haven't found it yet. You may have never read it before, and you may come to the end of it and think, God is anything but compassionate. But I assure you, the compassion and the mercy of God, properly understood, they drip off the pages by the time you come to the end of the story. As astounding as the account is, Job is a real person. It seems remarkable, especially in chapters 1 and chapter 2, that somebody could actually go through this and survive. But I assure you, 
He's a real person going through real pain, real trauma. It's visceral. And God gave us a description for a specific reason. He wanted us to understand that this really does happen to people. James holds him up as an example for everyone to look at and says, examine the life of Job. You'll see that he's a picture of endurance, of steadfastness. In all of the Bible, there's only one person who exceeds him. And as you might imagine, that's Jesus. Jesus, who in the midst of his trauma showed incredible steadfastness. On the night that he was arrested in the garden, in his darkest hour, when he cried out to God in his trauma, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he did something that Job couldn't do. He went one step further. In the midst of that cry to God, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Job couldn't do that. that. That wasn't Job's prayer. That's not what he prayed. He wanted nothing to do with the trauma. He wanted nothing to do with the pain and the suffering. He was crying out, God, deliver me. But you need to remember, keep this in mind. As a reader this morning, as, as a person who's observing the story of Job, you're informed of something that Job never knew. He's a test case. He doesn't know that he's a test case. And the scene shifts back and forth from heaven to earth, and it's revealing the hidden purpose behind the story, which is completely unknown to Job at the time. In God's presence, Satan accuses Job of being faithful to God only for what he can get out of it. Satan's accusation is this, he's dedicated to you only because he's getting something in return. It's a, it's a fake relationship, God. And according to Satan, Job didn't serve God with pure motives. That he was only there in relationship with God because he was blessed of God. That he's got so much that he couldn't help but praise God. But you take it away from him, God. You, you take away his possessions. You take away his health. You take away his relationships. And you'll see You'll see that he'll turn his back on you. So according to Satan, Job's relationship with God was a sham. Satan actually uses this argument for no reason. So Satan proposes that Job's faith will be destroyed if God allows suffering and loss to come on him. And remarkably, to the reader, shock of all shocks, God says, okay, and he releases Satan to do what he will, but to spare Job's life. Now, you and I as a reader, we know that Job's innocent, but here's a truth. Sane people, sane, S-A-N-E, sane people begin to question their sanity when they're faced with excruciating loss. Sane people begin to question the love of God when they're faced with excruciating illness. It's exactly what you're going to see happen to Job, especially where there's no identifiable reason. 
Now, in these first few opening verses, you're going to gain facts about Job. You're going to get a few insights into him, like his location, his wealth, his godliness. This just sets context. We're going to move through it really quickly. Look with me at verse 1, Job 1.1. In the land of Uz, there, was a li- there lived a man <clears throat> excuse me, whose name was Job. He's in the northernmost part of Saudi Arabia. Verse 2 says this. I'm sorry, verse 1, part 1b. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now, we're not thinking here theologically perfect. We're talking about someone who's got great integrity. There's, There's a blamelessness to him. He's talking about the acts of his daily behavior. We're not saying he's sinless. Everybody has sin. Romans tells us that. We all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. But he's complete in his inner man. His behavior is in line with God. But here's verse 2. It says, he had seven sons, Job 1, 2. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. As you read the story, especially in verse 5, you're going to find that Job functioned as the spiritual leader of his family. Where he suspected there might be sin, he actually made offerings on behalf of his sons and daughters in case they may have offended God. And he took his role very, very seriously. You find that in verse 5. Thanks very much for that, Michael. I appreciate that. Everybody knows what it is to have a clogged throat these days. Lots of pollen in the air. We come to verse 3 and we find that Job was the greatest man of all the men in the east. Do you see that in verse 3? So catch this, church. Job was a very, very, very wealthy man. So the total picture that you have going on here is not only someone who's the president and CEO of Job Incorporated, and his holdings are vast, the total picture is not just of a wealthy man. He's a godly man, and he's dedicated to his family and he's fulfilled, and his life is crowned with prosperity, both in his family life and in his professional life. But in a world where evil is all too real, good people, even good people, even righteous people suffer. And where suffering is present, you can be sure that it's precipitated by the activities of Satan. In other words, that Satan is working in the background, even though permitted by God for his purposes. Stay with me in this story now as we go through verse 6 and 8. It says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came from among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. That's a remarkable, God's saying that about a man. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord, here's the no reason argument. Does God have a Job that fears him 
without cause. Watch the way it's structured in the sentence. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Stay with that thought. Keep that in the presence of your mind as you work through this this morning. Verse 10, have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Satan's trying to give Job a reason here to hate God. Watch verse 11. This is still Satan talking to God. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Really hate that verse. I hate it because what we see there is Satan trying to tempt God. Jesus said to Satan during the temptation, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. But Satan just tempted God. He said, put forth your hand, trying to get God to do the dirty deed here. But put forth your hand and touch all that he has. Give him a reason to hate you. Has God allowed things in your life which appear to be there for no reason? As God allowed things to come into your life, have you or are you currently walking through deep water that's not of your choice? Maybe the thought would go this way. I, I didn't raise my kids to turn out this way. I didn't build this business just to see it torn apart. I didn't walk into a marriage just to get divorced. Why is my health so bad? I haven't done anything wrong. Why am I losing this relationship? If you're there right now, or if you have been, or you know someone who is, if, if you are there, you're experiencing what the Bible calls a Hinnom trial. It's an Old Testament term. It's a Hebrew word. It's actually in your notes this morning, and you see it on the screen, the, the word Hinnom. It means to be devoid of cost, now, Satan's arguing from the side of give him a cause, give him a reason, and he'll turn his back on you. Satan's arguing he fears you because he has everything to lose. You remove it, and he will abandon you. Let him be shut up for 12 weeks with a coronavirus. Let him have no source of income. Let him watch his food pantry deplete. Let illness come upon him. Let him watch his world collapse. Let him watch chaos in the streets. Does God allow things to happen in which there seems to be no reason? The key word in that question is the word seems. Does God allow things for which there seems to be no reason? Now, if you're a church person and you grew up in church and you know theology, you immediately are thinking Romans 8.28. No, no, God causes all things to work together for good. Well, you know that because you're a church person and you've been well-trained in the Bible. God never allows something to happen for which there's not a reason, but there's plenty of times when it seems there's no reason. 
Keep those thoughts as we move back into the story because twice what you find happening is Satan comes before God. He's presenting the no reason argument. First, he's allowed to take his health and his, his wealth and his family and secondly, he comes back and he inflicts Job with so much pain that it comes within just inches of his life. But let's watch how this unfolds. Job chapter one still, now we're in verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, meaning they took the donkeys, they took the livestock, they took the camels. Watch now in verse 16. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. Up to this point, Job has just been receiving the information, but watch his reaction in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. And you would expect it to say he cursed God because that's what many people would do in that moment. But that's not what Scripture records. It records the most remarkable thing. It says he fell to the ground and he worshipped and he said in verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amazing, amazing attitude. As a teenager, when I was reading that, I thought that's all I need to know about that guy. How could anyone do that? And yet now you see why the writers of the New Testament quote him and God speaks of him so highly throughout the Old Testament. Why he's used as the example of patience and perseverance because in verse 22 it says, through all this Job did not sin nor did he blame God. That's all you need to know about him. As the story unfolds, Job is now touched next with this severe illness and he develops boils and he can't sit and he can't stand and he can't lay down and his teeth fall out and boils cover his body and he's got foul breath and you find him sitting on an ash heap in sackcloth with a, a wasting disease of some type we, we don't know. The phrase skin and bones actually comes from the book of Job. He's literally scratching and scraping his body and his fingernails don't work well enough so he breaks a clay jar and he uses the shards of the clay to begin scraping because he's in so much torment. Go, go back into the text with me and look at this. It says in chapter 2, verse 7, 
this is speaking of what Satan did. Satan smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he, meaning Job, took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was still sitting among the ashes. It's a horrible image. He's going instantly from being CEO to bankruptcy, from father to fatherless. He's got no more children from healthy to physically a wreck. One day he's working out at the gym, and the next day he's told he's got stage four cancer. One day he's counting his money and watching the stock market climb, and the next day the stock market drops and he loses everything. One day he's placed in order for inventory in his warehouses, and the next day he has no money to pay for it. On top of all the loss, his family included, he now loses his health. I heard people say this, perhaps you heard people say this as you were children growing up, maybe you've heard people around you say, my relatives said it a lot, they said, if you have your health, you have everything. Well, that's simply not true. I've come to understand that as I've aged, as I'm approaching middle age now, I recognize, <laughs> I recognize it's not true. That statement, if you have your health, you have everything, it implies that if you don't have complete health, you can't have a complete life. Well, that's not true. There's countless cancer patients, people who are confined to beds that have a joyful and a fulfilling life. It may not be what it once was. And as humans, we grieve for what once was and we know the loss but it doesn't mean you can't continue to pursue all that God has for them in that present state. Hear me on that thought. James wrote that suffering in your life, even the illness you might be going through, it produces something. It's the whole reason I wanted to go after this issue of Job. When you suffer trauma, when you suffer loss, God says there's a reason behind it. It produces something in your life. Look with me at what James wrote. You see this on your screen, James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, there's an attitude adjustment he's talking about. What, put joy behind this? Consider it joy when you encounter various trials. Why, James? Because God's at work. God's behind the scenes. He's not a bystander. God's behind the scenes knowing that the testing of your faith, something's going on, you're being tested there, and it produces something in your life. You going through an illness right now? Are you going through job loss? God says the testing of that issue in your life, maybe a lost relationship, it produces something in you. It produces endurance. That's why I asked the question, what would you like the effect of what you've just gone through in these last 12 weeks to be going forward as you look back on this? What has it produced in you? Scripture says when you go through those testing trials, those various trials, it produces endurance. In other words, there's an end product to hard times. It produces something. Now, this is a really good place to mention this just for free. It doesn't have anything to do with the message that we're working through here, but it kind of does. 
let me just mention this, healing on this planet, healing of trials, healing of these kind of diseases is not always God's will. Christians get dementia. Christians get cancer. Christians find their businesses shut down by viruses. Is God in that? I've known believers who've lost their mental capacities. I've known believers who would never speak a foul word in their life because of a lost mental capacity or because the suffering is so great, the most vile words began coming out of their mouth and they become just a shell of the person they were formerly and don't even resemble the person of the past and you're left asking, Lord, why? Why why him? Well, some will tell you it's because Satan's in control, that evil's in charge, as though God is some kind of a bystander. That's not a match for the God of the Bible. God's no cosmic bystander just watching everything go into chaos. Scripture indicates that he's sovereign, that he's over all of these things, that these things are working according to a plan and a purpose that he's executing his plan. So God's active behind these things. That's why he's called sovereign. So healing is not always God's present will and purpose. Let me give you an example of that. I don't, I don't want to just make that random statement without being able to back that up. Paul suffered greatly. But what do we know about Paul? Well, he was the apostle who had the gift of healing And he says three times he went to God and he said to God, God, I've got this thorn in my flesh and I don't want it anymore. Would you take it away? And he says three times I went to God and asked him to take it away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. At the end of the third time, God said, Paul, stop asking. Don't ask anymore. Paul's got the gift of healing and he can't heal himself. Why? Because it wasn't God's will, because the trial he was going through was producing something. Or, or maybe take Timothy. Timothy's got a stomach issue, some kind of a, a celiac disease, something going on in his life, and he's got a disruption, and all Paul can say who's got the gift of healing to Timothy is, drink some wine, Timothy. Take it for medicinal purposes. It, it'll do good things for your stomach, but he can't heal him. God allows struggles like that to come into our life to produce a purpose. So is difficulty part of God's will? Is there a reason behind the pain and the loss? Is there purpose in that? When bad things happen, not just to the population in general, not just to the nation at large, but to the Lord's people, to to church people, Is God in the midst of that too? Keep that thought in mind as we keep working through this. In the midst of Job's suffering and his trauma, Mrs. Job comes on the scene and things are so horrible in Job's life that she finally tells him, Job, just curse God and die. That's verse nine. And I think she's doing it out of sympathy. Verse nine out of chapter two 
I think she's doing it out of sympathy. She's not always treated the best. She's not always regarded by Bible commentators as uh, being a good reputation. Even by Job, actually, in some cases. Job says this, look with me on the screen in verse 10, chapter 2. But he said to her, you're speaking as one of the foolish women speaks. In other words, honey, that's, that's not like you. That's not how you would normally speak. You're speaking out of your head. Why would you counsel me to do that? Well, I'd be quick to remind you that Mrs. Job has lost 10 children also. She's a bereaved mother. She's watching her husband become a shell of the former man. And, and she knows, unless God takes Job out, there's no getting out of this mess. So just curse him and die, Job. Clearly, we understand that Job knew this was from God because he responds with a challenge in the midst of all that's going on, in all the loss, in all the trauma. Watch how he responds to his wife in verse 10. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips, meaning he didn't say anything negative against God. And clearly he believes this is all sourced in God's activity because he says we've accepted good from God all our life. Should we not accept adversity, meaning from God? He knows the source of it. He clearly understands God is sovereign. So it's paramount when you think of trauma, when you think of suffering, that you retain in your understanding nothing is outside of God's control, good things and bad things, and Job understood this. So he refuses to curse God. Through all this, Job did not sin with his lips, nor did he blame God, verse 22, chapter 1. Now, keep that in mind as you watch Job's friends enter on the scene. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time with them this morning nor next week because I don't think they're the major player in this story. And and we're just doing a two-week overview here. But here's what's going on. They're struggling to explain Job's issues from a position of ignorance. They think they've got God all figured out, and they think they can bring what they believe is an answer to why Job's going through what he's going through, and their position is a position of ignorance. They mean well, I think, but they come, Scripture says, to bring him comfort. Watch with me in the first part of this. Chapter 2, verse 11, now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him, except they didn't, right? They didn't bring him comfort. When they came, they brought greater grief, but they mean well in their coming. Watch the next part, verse 12, chapter 2. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their head toward the sky. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very, very great. Now that's a good friend. 
That's a good friend if someone will sit with you for seven days and not even say a word and, and just observe. Maybe they're praying for him in the midst of that. I, I don't know. When you watch the interaction of his friends as the story goes on, and, and they're certainly in this position of bringing accusation against him. Now, by the time you arrive at chapter 3, Job is in a trench. He's not somebody who's above the struggle, as though he's had prosperity all his life and he doesn't know what it is to be in the trenches. He's in the trench. He's not above the struggle. And ultimately, you'll find as we wrap it up next week, he's really wrestling with his faith. He's struggling to put the pieces together. And with that thought in mind, we cautiously step into what is called the dark night of the soul in chapter 3. Because Job opens his mouth and he curses not God. He doesn't curse God, but he curses the day of his birth. And I've, I've had bad days. I've had bad weeks. I've even had bad months. I'm sure you have too. Maybe you look back on these last three months as bad months. I don't know, but I can tell you I've never been in a place where I've cursed the day of my birth. Have you done that? Have you cursed the day that you were born, wishing that you had never been put on this planet? Job did. Like I said, read the full passage. Read all 42 chapters this week and you'll see what's going on. But here's just an excerpt from chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived, may that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the other days of the year. Job just wants to get out an eraser. And he removed that date from the calendar. That's, that's darkness. Watch how he wraps it in verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? There is perhaps no darker passage in all of Scripture other than Jesus in the garden before his arrest. Jesus, uh, Jeremiah quotes this passage. It seems that he memorized it, and I know we tend to memorize the things that we hold most precious. Jeremiah recites that dark passage in the Old Testament when he's locked in the stocks for proclaiming God's word. It's a really, really dark passage of scripture, perhaps because of the darkness you've personally experienced. You've only ever told maybe your best friend or your most trusted counselor in a dimly lit room, I wish I had never been born. Maybe in your darkest moment you thought that. Maybe that's ushered forth from your lips. 
and you're haunted with that thought. I, I wish I had never been born. Watch Job's heart. See what's going on in his life. See this next passage. Verse 24, groaning comes at the sight of my food. My cries pour out like water. Verse 25, for what I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. He's saying, I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't stop crying. I'm in misery. And chapter three is a full-blown lament of the soul. And this isn't suicide. This isn't him wanting to take his own life. He doesn't go there. But you see in verse eight, he definitely wants to be removed from the earth, but he knows that's God's prerogative. Job's wife knows that's God's prerogative, not their prerogative. C.S. Lewis wrote about this dark despair when his wife died. My dad, my dad spoke of this when my mom passed. Psalm 88 speaks of the dark night of the soul. It, it speaks of the darkness as being my only companion. The writer of Psalm 88 calls darkness my old friend. It kind of makes me wonder if Paul Simon wrote, hello darkness, my old friend, from that passage. I don't know the source of that, but I, I know that the writers of Scripture call it that. Uh, if you personally have never encountered that kind of trauma to the degree that's described here, you might be tempted to think, wait, how could any God-fearing person say they belong to God and speak that way? And, and if that's you, time out for a second. If that's you, this is really instructive because these things were written to aid you also as you find yourself having to speak into the life of someone in your life who's struggling with deep loss. Maybe they've known, someone in your life has known huge financial loss over these last 12 weeks. Maybe someone you know has gone through huge physical trauma and they're struggling to make sense of all this. You need to recognize that chapter three of Job is part of the inspired word of God. It's a, it's a legitimate description of what it's like to be in this place of excessive suffering. These are the things that perhaps your closest friend won't even tell you that they're feeling, but Job captured it. And God moved that it would be written down for a reason so that we would know what it's like for someone to go through the dark night of the soul. And what God produces on the other side of that is critically important to this particular story. So this is not here by accident. It was captured by Job in the midst of his journey that God allowed these things into his life, things that I've never experienced, things that I never want to experience, but others have. Others I know have gone through these dark waters, and some that we know collectively within the church are there right now. The loss is catastrophic. And Jeremiah has been there. One of the greatest men to ever walk the planet has been there, Job. And Jesus, 
Jesus has been there. Jesus has been in that dark place where he said to the Father, Father, I don't want to walk this road. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Even at this late hour, I don't want to drink of this cup. But that's my will. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. See, Jesus has been in that dark place. That's why we're told he sweat great drops of blood. See, Jesus could quickly say what Job could not say and what you and I very, very much struggle with saying. Nevertheless, not my will. Not my will, but your will, Father, because I know you're producing something out of this. You're bringing something out of this. That's why Hebrews 4 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. Look with me on the screen at this. Hebrews 4, 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So you love verse 16. Therefore, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Check this with me. (laughs) Pay very close attention to this. God the Son becomes Jesus the man. And Jesus the man in his humanity is in a very dark place. I don't want to go there in my humanity. But what's more important is your will, Father, what you're trying to accomplish, what you're bringing out of this. So not my will, but your will be done. So he's in that very dark place because of sin. And not his sin. He knew no sin, but he's there because of my sin, He's there because of your sin. Our sin is the thing that led him to that place, the darkest place possible. Many people comment about the physical torture that Jesus went through, and it's all real. It's all too real. But the greatest trauma, I'm convinced, is the thing that caused him the greatest struggle. The one who could remain silent as they scourged his physical body The thing that caused him to cry out in the darkness was God turning away because he who knew no sin became sin for me. A major challenge of walking through trauma and walking through trials, we get these preconceived notions in our head about how God acts. What you're seeing in this story is Wicked people do prosper, and they do prosper temporarily. Good people, righteous people, do suffer temporarily. Job is suffering innocently, and he wants God to answer him. He's not yet in the place of saying, I want your will, God, no matter what. He's saying, I want to defend myself. So I'm going to wrap up this week by going to chapter 9 and just a couple verses here. 
before we step back into worship so that you can get in your head what's going on in Job's mind. Watch what he's asking for. He says, God, he's speaking of him, he, God, is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. Job's thinking, I got a case. I'm a righteous dude. I've not done anything wrong. I don't deserve this. I need someone to argue my case before God. So if there was only someone to bring us together, someone, verse 34, to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Verse 35, then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job's saying, I want an advocate. I want an advocate between me and God and not because of a sin issue. He's saying, I haven't done anything wrong up to this point, up to chapter nine. He's saying, there's no reason these things should befall me. So I want an advocate so I can argue my case. I need to stand before the court of God and make my case known. So he's not talking about sin. He doesn't want an advocate for the sin issue. In the end, as we come into next week, you're going to see and you're going to be reminded that it's not God who's on trial, but rather God is your advocate. God is the one who stands. The lesson that we're learning here is that you may never know the specific reason for suffering, but while you're going through the midst of it, you've got to trust God that he's in that sovereign place where he can do all things together for good, that he's working all things for a purpose. That he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, to those who are called. That's the real answer to the suffering. And that's why James wrote what he did in chapter 1, verse 2. Look at it again. Let me remind you of that. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, knowing what, James? Knowing that there's a reason for the testing, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, keep going, verse four, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God the Father ordains that his own children walk through hard times and maybe, just maybe, you're in that place right now. Or maybe recently you can look back on it and say, I was there. I was in that dark place just a few weeks ago. Or maybe you know someone who's there right now. Let me encourage you to keep your notes because you're going to want these four things that we're going to wrap up with to encourage that one or to encourage yourself about the reasons we see biblically with a full-orbed picture of most of us being able to understand why God allows these kind of things Encourage those individuals in your life with one, maybe more of these four things. Look with me on the screen at these or on your notes. Sometimes suffering is because of sin. It's a truth of scripture. I, I gave you a reference to the book of Numbers there. That's the illustration of Miriam, Moses' sister, who had sinned and then she's afflicted with leprosy. Sometimes it's for that reason, but sometimes, number two, it's for chastening. Hebrews chapter 5 speaks of, or 12 speaks of that. It's because God wants to bring some type of correction into your life. 
Or number three, sometimes it's for strengthening. Sometimes you're struggling and you go through trauma because God wants to strengthen you. Read 1 Peter 5.10. It speaks of that. You see that in your notes. But here's another reason. Sometimes there's an opportunity in it to reveal God's comfort and his grace. And that's why James wrote Job's, Job's endurance. It was about putting God on display. See, in every situation, the overarching principle is that in every case, it's all about putting God on display, of making him glorious. And that's true for the believer. If you're not a believer, you wonder, what in the world am I talking about? I just want out of that trauma. But a believer understands it's about putting God on display. There are times when the compelling issue is that the suffering is unknowable because it's for a heavenly purpose that God hasn't revealed. Job doesn't get it revealed to him by the end of the story. Why? God doesn't tell him the reason why. And sometimes they can't be discerned until eternity. But by spreading out the story, and that's why I'm encouraging you to read it this week, by spreading out the story, the elements of this great theme, you see these principles in Job's experience. They're in your notes. They're not going to come up on your screen, but they're in your notes this morning. Just reminding you, there's things going on in heaven right now that believers know nothing about, that we're not giving the information to, yet it affects our daily lives. And our best efforts at explaining it, or brilliant theologians coming around you trying to make sense of it, can turn into something useless because they probably don't understand either. God's people do suffer And if we keep that in our mind, we have to remember God's people do suffer not always because of sin. So we can't enter into judgment over their suffering. So here's my admonishment to you in the midst of it, if you're going through it right now. During that time, draw near to God. Because out of the fellowship with God, that's where the comforting comes. You're never going to get it if you run the opposite direction. You've got to run to him in order to receive that comfort. And sometimes you won't get an explanation in the midst of it. But you reach the point where the trust is so great, you won't even need the explanation. The suffering ultimately ends. It ultimately ends either here or in eternity for the believer in Christ. So we end with this thought in mind, the all-powerful God creator can do as he pleases in every situation, but always with a purpose. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. I can invite you to pray with me right now. Let's pray before we step into worship. Lord God, I thank you that we get to worship you on the heels of what we've just heard. You're worthy of the worship. You're worthy of the praise. Let us be like Job, that even if everything was stripped from us, even if our health was gone, we've lost our family, we've lost our possessions, even then we wouldn't curse you, but that we would worship you. So put us in that place right now where we can use the benefit of music to worship you because you're worthy of it. God, I ask that you would allow these truths to sink deep in our hearts, 
These things that you caused to be written down thousands of years ago, not by accident, but for a reason, to strengthen us and remind us, you cause all things to work together for good. We pray that in the midst of it, we would praise you because you're worthy of it. And we ask for that in the name of our matchless King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.